Brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, the text that we have before us is a very memorable text. Once you hear it, it's hard to forget. I'm sure many of the children here already know the story even before we read it here in church this morning. In fact, so memorable is this story that that Disney a number of years ago even told this story in a movie. Indeed, it's, it's a wonderful story. But more than that, it's not just a story or a memorable story at that. It's also one that challenges us as God's people. It's one that calls us to live by faith in the midst of great adversity and uncertainty. But even more than that, it's a text, as we will see this morning, that directs our attention, that calls us to look to the Lord, to see his deep care and his deep love for his people, and to see the lengths that he will go in order to redeem his covenant people. So I proclaim the gospel to you this morning under the theme, From the River of Death Comes a Redeemer of Life. Now Exodus 1 ends with a note of tension. There is a decree from Pharaoh to all of his people All of his people are given the authority to throw little Hebrew baby boys into the Nile. The daughters can live, but all of the Hebrew boys should be cast into the Nile. The fact that that is given to all of his people is very significant there. It's not just a number of Pharaoh's authorities and officials. No, all the Egyptians. So if you were an Egyptian, you had the authority And even you were commanded by Pharaoh, if you saw a little baby Hebrew boy, you were to throw him in the Nile. That's quite a command. And you can imagine then the the, the tension that the Israelites would have as well. the, The hesitancy even to have children then. Why bother risk it? But yet we find at the beginning of our text in Exodus 2... We find a a Levite husband and wife, and they have to now deal with Pharaoh's decree in a very personal way. They are expecting a child. And in due time, this wife of the Levite gives birth to a son. Now, in normal circumstances, this son would have brought great joy to his mother, His his parents, they they would have spread the word to their neighbors and their friends. It's a boy. But not now. Declaring his gender too loudly would become a death sentence for their son. For sooner or later, the word would would find its way to, to a ruthless Egyptian. They would find out that there was a baby boy born to a Levite family. They would go in search of that child and under Pharaoh's authority would take that child and toss him ruthlessly into the water of death. That is what the river Nile had become, the water of death. It was known by the the Egyptians at that time as the river of life, but but now with Pharaoh's decree, it had indeed become the river of death for the Israelites. And during the time of Pharaoh's decree, surely many of the daughters of Leah and Rachel were found weeping for their dead children and refusing to be comforted. 
But this mother, this Levite mother in our text, she's not willing to give up her dear, dearly loved son too quickly. We find in verse 2 that she looks at her child and she sees, we, we are told in our text, she sees that he was a fine child. Literally, it says he saw that he was good. Now here it seems to be in the sense of being healthy, well, or even beautiful. And perhaps we might think, well, there's nothing really remarkable about that statement, is there? After all, is this not how all mothers, or at least most mothers, is that not how they view their their children when they are born? Even if one child is, is not as beautiful or as healthy as the rest in the eyes of the mother, that child is a fine, a good, beautiful child. But as we will soon see, there is more than meets the eye. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But in any case, his mother, seeing that this child is a fine child, she hides him for three months. You have to think that that's a remarkable thing to do, to be able to, to hide a little infant child. Many of you have had children. You can see that here in the congregation. And you know that, that it would take a lot of work to keep a three-month-old child quiet for a long time. They cry when they're hungry. They don't wait. They, they don't say, oh, Pharaoh's got a decree. I better keep my mouth shut. No, they, they cry when they're hungry. And so it must have taken a lot of skill and even courage on the part of, of this child's mother and also on the part of his father. Take a great skill to hide this child. And it also took a great amount of faith. That's what we find in Hebrews 11, verse 23. Upon reflecting on this, on this act of, of hiding this child, we are told that his mother and his father did so as an act of faith. Well, now in verse 3, the, this mother, she realizes, though, that she can't hide her child any longer. But she's still not willing to give up her child to the Egyptians. She cannot bear the thought of, of seeing her child be thrown into the water of death. So what does she do? Well, she does it herself. She puts her own child in that river of death. With her own hands, oh, not with the intention of killing him, of course. For before she, she places him in the Nile, then she places him in a little boat. A little boat made of bulrushes. It was a reed-like plant that grew along the banks of the Nile. And then to, to make it waterproof, we are told in verse 3 that she coated it with bitumen and pitch or tar and pitch. Those were materials that were readily available for this family because they had been making bricks for Pharaoh. And those were the materials used for making bricks. So she uses what she has in order to provide a little boat for this child. And only after she has made this, this little boat waterproof, then she places him in the river of death. And surely she did so with tears streaming down her face and fear in her heart. Because she's fully aware of just how fragile this whole plan of hers is. There are so many things that could still go wrong. She knows that she can't control many of them. She has done her best, though, as a mother. 
This is clear also in the way that the, the place that she has located her child. She has carefully made this little boat for him. And then she doesn't take the boat and, and push it off into the middle of, of the Nile. Say, good luck, son. No, instead we, we find in verse 3 that she strategically places the boat among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. That is where the water is calmer. That is where there is less chance of his little boat tipping over. In addition, she also enlists her daughter to watch over the the little boat to see exactly what will happen. But after all that, after all the plans that she has done, now she has to rest in the Lord. She needs to place this little child in the Lord's hands. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, In his heart, or here we could say, in her heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. She must have faith here to trust that the Lord will will provide for her little child. She needs to leave it in the Lord's hands. She has done all that she could. And surely that still must have been very hard for this mother and and father to do. That is the hardest thing for, for all of God's people to do. Is it not in the, in the midst of uncertainty? When, when, when the future looks so very fragile and we don't know what is going to happen, especially when it comes to, to our children, well then how hard it is to trust in the Lord. How hard it is to, to lay it in the hands of the Lord and allow Him to guide all things. And yet that is what this mother does. She leaves it in the hands of the Lord. And that too is what we are called to do. In the midst of of uncertainty. In the midst of an unknown future that looks so very fragile at times. And when we look at at our children and, and we don't know what will happen to them. Perhaps we see them going astray and we struggle. But we need to leave it in the Lord's hands. To be sure we need to do all that we can just like that mother did in our text. She took all the steps to to help her child along. But then at the end of the day, she is called to live by faith and to leave it in the Lord's hands. And yet this account is more than just a call for us and for that mother to trust in the Lord in the face of adversity, to use our gifts and our wisdom for the benefit of our children. In fact, the faith of this child's parents and their courage is secondary The focus is primarily on the helpless child. Everything surrounds the child. Everything is about him. And we we might wonder why. Why this particular child? For surely this child was not the only one whose parents did extraordinary things in order to rescue their baby boys from the river of death. It may even be possible that there were other children who who were rescued from the river of death as well. And yet all the focus is on this little child. Why? Well, earlier we, we mentioned that this mother noticed that her child was a fine or good child. But she said that not only because her child was healthy and handsome, but because she noticed along with her husband that there was something extraordinary about this child in the sight of God. That's clear also in Hebrews 11. It says that his parents hid him because they saw he was no ordinary child 
Ordinary in the eyes of the Lord, the intention there is in Hebrews 11. So what is so extraordinary about this child? Well, that's clear in the description of his little boat. There was nothing special about that boat. As, as we saw, it was simply made of materials that the mother had on hand. And yet the Hebrew text doesn't call the, this, his little boat just, just a basket or a boat. In the Hebrew, it's actually called an ark. An ark. Now, there's only one other place in the Old Testament, one other event that uses this same word, ark. I'm sure the children can probably guess. It's not the ark of the covenant. It's that other ark that, that, that Noah had to build, of course. Back in Genesis 6 to 9. Right there, it's the, the same word. The ark there is used as the same word here in our text. And what did Noah have to do? Well, Noah had to build that ark, and in so doing, Noah was rescued. But not only was he rescued, so also was his family rescued from the waters of destruction. And so by using this word ark in our text then, to describe this little, this little boat that looked nothing at all like Noah's ark, we realize that this child is being described as one like Noah. And in this way, then, we are assured already here that although everything looks so fragile, the Lord will indeed rescue this child from the waters of death just like he rescued Noah. And not only will he just rescue Noah or, or rescue this child in the little boat, he will use this child like he used Noah to rescue his family. And who is the family of this little child but the people of God, the family of Israel, the Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt. This is the child then, and this is what we need to see most clearly in this text. This child is the Redeemer of Israel. This is the one whom God is raising up to fulfill his promises. He has seen his people in slavery. He has seen them groan as they are making their bricks, as they are building those cities for Pharaoh. He has seen the harsh labor that they are enduring. And the Lord, true to his promises, is now raising up a redeemer, raising up a child to rescue them. And so here what we need to see then is God's faithfulness to his people. He looks down upon his people and he says, I care about your suffering. I care about your slavery and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send you a child, a redeemer. Now the ark points us back to Noah and what he did. But, but the circumstances surrounding this child's birth also points us forward to another birth. There was another child in the Bible who was born in fragile times. There was also a decree surrounding his birth where all the little boys would be killed, three years old and younger. And that child, perhaps you guessed it, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When our Savior was born, remember the Magi, they came to, to Herod. They asked him about the king of the Jews. And Herod pretends to be very pious. He wants to worship the, this little king as well. But we know otherwise he wants to kill this little boy. 
He wants to kill anyone who is a threat to his kingdom and his kingship. And so he tells the Magi, once they find, once they find the child, to come back and tell him where he is so he can worship him. It looks so perilous. It looks so fragile. Just like our text as well. So many things could go wrong. Here is the Redeemer, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, laying, laying in, in Bethlehem. And yet now the, the king is preparing to kill him. And yet the Lord intervenes there. The Lord speaks to the Magi in a dream. Tells them to go another way and then Pharaoh is outwitted or, or, or Herod is outwitted, sorry. But then as a result, then the, then the kids in Bethlehem, there's the command for them to be killed. But the Lord again intervenes. He is not willing to, to let this child be destroyed because he is Israel's. He is our Redeemer and our Savior. And so the Lord sends his parents, sends them to a place far away from Bethlehem, sends them to Egypt. And there then our, our, our Savior is rescued, just like Noah. Or just, just like Noah, just like the child in the ark as well. We see too that, that Jesus Christ as well. Right? He, he will rescue his people just like Noah did and just like Moses in the ark will do as well. But it will be a victory that is far better than the one that Moses can give. We go back to our text in verse 5. Here there appears on the scene Pharaoh's own daughter. She's at the Nile. She's, she's bathing in the privacy of, of the bulrushes, the, the, the reeds along the Nile. She's surrounded by her female friends. And then it happens. She sees the, the ark among the reeds. She sends her female servant to retrieve it. And then in verse 6, Pharaoh's daughter opens the ark and sees the baby. Now, if we aren't gripped with fear and suspense at this point, it's because we know this story too well. Or think about it, this may be the worst possible scenario that this child's mother had envisioned. Well, she wanted her child to be, to be found by somebody, maybe even perhaps found by an Egyptian, but certainly not this Egyptian, not Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's own daughter, surely she had been raised to hate the Hebrews as much as her father did. And surely in obedience to her father's decree, she will toss this little child back into the Nile. And this time without his little ark. But she doesn't. Verse 6 goes on to note that, that the baby was, was crying and that she took pity on him. It implied here is a deep sense of, of compassion. Her heart goes out to this child. And her compassion leads her to rescue this little child. Even though she knew that he was a Hebrew baby. And what an incredible twist to the story. This is irony at its best. From the river of death, the redeemer of Israel's life, this little baby, is spared by Pharaoh's own daughter. Pharaoh's own daughter rescues Israel's redeemer from Egypt. And here again we see that Pharaoh is outwitted. He was outwitted by, by the Hebrew midwives in, in chapter 1. Now he's, he's outwitted by his own daughter. 
And the irony continues in our text in the verses 8 and 9. For remember, who's, who's watching all this? The child's sister. And as she's watching, she seems to sense the princess's compassion for, for her brother. And she acts quickly. She offers to find a Hebrew woman to nurse her, her, her baby for her. And the suggestion suits the princess quite well. And so off the child's sister goes. She goes to get a wet nurse for her brother. And of course, who does she come back with? Well, her own mother. The child's own mother. Mother and child are reunited. And perhaps at this point, Pharaoh's daughter was somewhat suspicious. Perhaps she, she knew that, that this was the child's mother and daughter. Perhaps there was similar similarities in their faces. But if so, she doesn't let on. Instead, she, she simply tells the wet nurse in verse 9. She tells her to, to take the child. Verse 9. Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. Again, what irony. The mother is not only reunited with her child, she gets paid to nurse her very own child. I doubt many mothers here can brag about that. As this is irony at its best. And it's what makes this story so memorable. All these twists, but it's not just irony at its best. We need to see that this is divine irony. This is divine providence. This is the hand of the Lord. And even though the Lord's name is not mentioned at all in our text... We see his fingerprints at every turn. For surely it was not by accident that this child's mother was, was moved to place her child in that little ark. Surely it's not coincidence that of all the children to have compassion on, Pharaoh's daughter has compassion on this child. The very one whom God is raising up to rescue his oppressed people. And surely it wasn't by accident that in rescuing this child, Pharaoh's plans are unraveling once again. Yes, here we need to see the power of our God. He can and does use whomever he wishes to ensure his plans succeed and are carried out. So powerful is our God that, that he will use the daughter of a ruthless and ungodly leader in order to make his, the salvation of his people a reality. Yes, here we see God's mighty hand at work, working for the good and salvation of his covenant people. And that is above all what we need to see in our text. God's compassionate care for his people. And yet it's not all smooth sailing for, for the child from here on in. He remains with his biological mother. Until he's finished nursing and, and grows up. So this was probably about three or four years old. And then he, he's taken back to, to Pharaoh's daughter. We are told in verse 10. For a second time then, this, this child's mother has to give him up. The child, verse 10 says, be, became Pharaoh's daughter. And by extension then, the child also became Pharaoh's grandson. He's an Egyptian and now he's, he's given an Egyptian name, the name Moses. Now, there was a great benefit for Moses in all of this to, to be adopted into Pharaoh's family and household. Because in, in coming to, to Pharaoh's household, he wasn't just rescued from the river of death. He was also rescued from slavery. 
He was an Israelite. And if he had grown up, he, had, he would have had to live under the bondage of slavery. He too would have had to make bricks. But now, now that wasn't true for him anymore. Moses, being adopted into Pharaoh's family, has gone from danger to privilege, from rags to riches. And he will receive the finest education that money can buy. Rather than suffer, suffer in slavery along with the rest of the Israelites. Now, that may have given some consolation to Moses' biological mother. But still, this would have been an incredibly hard thing to do. Perhaps even harder than putting her child in the Nile River. Surely, many tears were shed as she walked up the steps of, of his new home. And why would have this been so hard for her? Not only because she had to give her child up a second time, but she's giving her child up to who? To the enemy. To the Egyptians. That means that now she will be unable to raise her child in the fear of the Lord. She will be unable to tell the stories of of God's love, of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, this child will be taught about the Egyptian gods. Maybe he will even be taught to hate his own people and worse to turn his back on the Lord of heaven and earth. And yet this mother gives her child up. This too was a courageous act of faith. She had already seen the, the work of God in the life of the child. And in faith she knew that even if she was helpless, the Lord is not. His plans would succeed And like her, we too must learn to live our lives in this kind of faith as well, in the light of God's providence. Because so often we face situations, especially when it comes to our children, that we cannot control. We see them going in a direction that, that, that we have no control over, and we fear. And we want to cling to them, we want to hold on to them. But at times like this, we also need to live by faith and not by sight. To trust in the Lord to to guide us. To be faithful to his promises. And to be sure it doesn't always turn out so well. But we need to leave it in the Lord's hands. And that applies not just to, to the struggles of our children. But to all of our struggles. We need to lay them before the Lord our God. But yet there is also more here as well. For this mother was not the only one who gave up her dearly loved son to the enemy. There was another parent in scripture who gave up his dearly loved son. God the Father. God the Father many years later with Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, gave up his own beloved son. Gave him up to his enemy. And this enemy was far worse than the enemy in our text. Moses was allowed to live and flourish in the courts of the enemy, but not so God's own son. His enemy was ruthless, more ruthless than all the Egyptians combined. His enemy was death itself. And God the Father, in his deep love, gave up his son to this enemy, to death. That was something Moses could never do. And he gave up that son for the redemption of us. For you and I, so that that our greatest enemy, death, would be defeated. Yes, when we see Jesus Christ dying on the cross, 
And we ought to see God the Father giving up His Son for you and for me. We ought to see our our Father's love and care for us. Our Father being faithful to His promises, granting us redemption, granting us life, forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. For that is what we have in Jesus Christ. Because He has defeated death, that means that we now have the promise of life. So we see, when we see the cross, we need to see that from the cross of death comes a redeemer of life. That is the the, the beauty of the gospel. We no longer fear our greatest enemy. We are often surrounded by death. Some of you are surrounded by death as well, even this morning. And yet we live in the hope and the promises that God loved us enough to give us victory over death. We do not have to fear. And in this, brothers and sisters, we rejoice. In this, we marvel. And in this, we come to realize the great depths of God the Father's love. So if you ever doubt God's care for you, if you ever wonder if God cares for you as you're going through oppression and suffering, surely the Israelites thought that. Well, then look to our text. But more than that, look to the cross of Christ. See how deep the Father's love is for you. See the lengths that he went in order to redeem you from death. For his willingness to give up his son shows that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from his love, not even death itself. And so whatever happens, congregation, then we need to learn to live by faith in Jesus. Even when all hope is gone, trust in and be confident In the Lord Almighty. He will not let us down. He is faithful. He has given up his beloved son for us. And he will care for us in the future as well. Our God is faithful. Amen.